So you know we have a guest speaker this morning, and some of you have already heard John. He spoke at our Sunday school hour, and so I, I uh, with great excitement, introduce John to you. Because of Christ in he and Lois, they have a great passion, like we do, that Christ be hailed and proclaimed and worshipped in all the nations. And I know that John, that God is going to use John to um, to stir our hearts and to equip us and to better enable us to build our lives on the rock. Since 2003, John Hutchison has served as field director for Frontline Missions International, assisting in the mobilization of workers for the harvest in the world's difficult places. By the way, our connection is through NOAA because NOAA went on his missions trip through Frontline Missions International. John's also involved in training underground pastors in creative access countries of the 1040 window region. And additionally, John conducts advocacy work in Washington, D.C. on behalf of persecuted Christians. And prior to his present position, he served as a pastor. That's the hardest thing he's ever done. Served as a pastor uh, for 25 years in Georgia. I think it was 23 in Georgia and two somewhere else, maybe. And... um. And then he's co-authored two books, and John and his wife, Lois, have been blessed with nine children, two of whom are pastors, and 20 grandchildren. What a blessing. That John is passionately focused on God's glory among the nations by equipping gospel risk-takers who are committed to being disciple-makers. Emphasis on risk-takers, and that's a lot of where his passion lies And in order to reach the nations for Christ, uh, we have to take risks. So, John, please come and and speak to us this morning. Thank you, Pastor Paul. Take your time to get settled in here. Great. Good. Thank you. It is a joy to be here. We appreciated having Noah as one of our interns this summer in our Frontline Experience uh, internship program. He distinguished. And I rejoice to see how God's using him here with the worship team and in different aspects of the ministry here. Uh, my lovely bride, Lois, is here. We've been married 563 months. We, we count our month anniversaries. So guys get in trouble on their anniversary date when they forget that it's their anniversary. And if guys, if you forget your anniversary on your anniversary date, then your wife's not a happy camper and you're in the doghouse. I see some heads nodding. But if you count your month anniversaries, you never forget your anniversary. So we've been married 563 months, and it gets special uh, more and more each day. Uh, she was my wonderful partner as a pastor's wife in the uh, mountains of North Georgia and um, for 23 years there. And then I was an assistant pastor when I first got out of seminary in Augusta, Georgia. So... Um, I'm thankful for my sweetheart. She's had spinal surgery uh, in the recent past, spinal fusion surgery, and so uh, she's not been able to travel with me as much as she has, but I'm glad in the past, but I'm glad she's been able to come with me on this trip and see the Lord uh, bringing his healing uh, for her. I wish I had time to tell you about when we were in Siberia, Russia, and she fell and broke her ankle on the ice and spent five days in a Siberian hospital where the health care was about on the level of the 1950s. But God wonderfully allowed us to have a service in her room. She had two Russian women as her roommates, and they understood more English than we did their Russian language because we had to speak through an interpreter. But the night before she left to come home to the U.S. for surgery, she... Um, we had a service in her room, and the local believers brought their musical instruments. We were singing praise. Sixteen patients crowded in from other rooms, and we held a service in that Siberian hospital a, a room that we couldn't have done in an American hospital room. And so we, uh, she shared her testimony about how this wasn't a mistake. It was part of God's plan so we could meet each one of them. And uh, I shared a gospel message, and we're trusting we're going to see some of them in heaven. With Slavic people, they have to hear the gospel multiple times because they're all told they're Christians because they were christened in the Russian Orthodox Church as a baby. So they're already told they're Christians. And so 
It takes multiple times for them to hear the gospel. But we are trusting we'll see some of them in heaven as a result of that broken ankle. And she came back to the U.S., had surgery. They had to put in two plates, eight screws, and some baling wire to put her ankle back together. But you'd never know it now. And she's a trooper. She doesn't complain and has the joy of Jesus in her life. So you need to get acquainted with her. Um, Do visit the table. We have a lot of resources, particularly our monthly e-newsletter. If you want to get direct reports from what God's doing in the hard countries of the world each month, sign up. We just need your name and your email address. There's a persecution report in there so you know somebody to pray for who's being persecuted that I write each month. And if after a couple of months, if you find something you're not really interested in, just hit unsubscribe and you're done with it. But we would encourage you to sign up for the e-newsletter with just your name and your email address. There, as far as free items, there's a quarterly newsletter that comes out called Dispatches from the Front. There are a couple of back issues of that. Then free to anyone who wants it. This is a uh, two-chapter excerpt out of a book our director has written, Tim Kazee, from over here in Danville, A Company of Heroes. Stories of great missionaries of the past, missionaries of the present, and even lay people involved in the gospel advance. But this two-chapter excerpt is free to anyone. If you want the full book, obviously you'd have to buy that. And then he's written another book, also called Dispatches from the Front, because he likes that term. Um, this shows some, describes some 70 countries he's been in, and he writes these gospel vignettes, short vignettes. Some families have used it in their family devotions with their children because they want them to get a heart for the Great Commission. And then, of course, there are the dispatches from the front videos. There are 10 uh, country-specific documentaries showing the power of the gospel and how Jesus is building his church in the most unlikely places. So these videos are back there as well as the books and the excerpt and the newsletter. Let me just set those over here. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 9, please, for our scripture this morning on valuing what God values. Valuing what God values. When it comes to global missions, it's easy for us to be very influenced by uh, American Christianity and American uh, perspective on the world. And we have to keep reminding ourselves that what's on our Savior's heart is the nations, not just the United States of America. I was telling about this guy in the morning, in the Sunday school hour that was a waiter in a restaurant in Morocco on 9-11 when they had the TV screens on there showing the planes flying in the Twin Towers. And he later said all of his buddies were shouting Allahu Akbar. They thought it was great. America was under attack. And all of his buddies were whooping and hollering. And he later said... This isn't the Islam I signed up for. I didn't sign up for killing people in the name of Allah. Two weeks later, he met a Christian. And that Christian shared the gospel with him. And God opened his heart and repented of his sins and he got saved. And he said, if he had met that Christian two weeks prior to 9-11, he wouldn't have given him the time of day. So our God is so awesome. He can take the tragedy of 9-11... And this has been multiplied many times over and use it to shake up Muslims' faith and their belief in Islam so that they will be open to listen to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the awesome God that we serve. We sang a while ago about his name being above every name. And we'll look at that in our text this morning. In verse number 35, please, in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every sickness. And seeing the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, plead with the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Father, would you open our minds to your word We're so prone to lean on our own understanding. 
and go by how things look to us, would you take your word and renew our minds to think your thoughts after you, to have a biblical perspective, to have a God focus regarding what's going on in the world around us, and so that our priorities are your priorities and we value what you value. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Valuing what God values. Our natural tendency as human beings is that we put the value on what we see around us, what we would call temporal things and possessions, our homes, our families, our vehicles, our bank accounts, our retirement portfolios, whatever's left in that, and um, our hobbies. We put the value on that. And we have it so good in America. In fact, there was a book written uh, about 10 years ago called The Progress Paradox, How Life Gets Better But People Feel Worse by a guy named Greg Easterbrook. And he went back and examined all the leading indicators of lifestyle and found out that we in America live better than 99.4%. Not of the rest of the world. We live better than 99.4% of everyone who's ever lived on planet Earth throughout human history. And he went through and examined the indicators. For example, um, through the advances of medical science, life expectancy nearly doubled in the last century. The beginning of the 20th century, life expectancy was 47 years of age here in America. By the end of the 20th century, it had nearly doubled to 77 years of age. Through the eradication of diseases like polio and smallpox and diphtheria and getting pneumonia under control. And then he examined financial indicators. Real personal uh, per capita income has doubled since 1960. And even our homes we live in, the average new construction home in America at the end of World War II was 1,100 square feet. Now, the average new construction home is 2,300 square feet. So by every measure of affluence, health care, leisure, technology, the average American enjoys a quality of life beyond what their grandparents enjoyed. And we have more of everything except happiness. Because the surveys have shown that people that describe themselves as happy has flatlined since the 1950s. And those who describe themselves as very happy has actually declined. And the incidence of depression have risen to 25% of the population. Now, please understand, some people have depression due to biological and genetic factors. And they need medical treatment for that. But for the majority of people who battle with depression, it's because they have an inward focus. There, you don't find happiness by looking at it. And we certainly don't find happiness by focusing on our problems and what we don't have. And so the scripture is clear. We're to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to us, including all the happiness we can uh, handle. But we, our natural tendency is to focus on what we can see. But God values the harvest because it's eternal and it should be what you and I place the value on as well. The harvest is mentioned three times in this text. It's mentioned in verse 37, the harvest is plentiful. And then in verse 38, plead with the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Now God... The Holy Spirit, when he inspired this to be written, and even with Jesus speaking here during his earthly ministry, used a farming analogy. And you folks know about farming. I mean, you're not like people that grew up in the big city, and the only thing they know about a harvest is maybe when they try and plant some tomato plants and hope they get something out of it uh, when they're done. But he used a harvest analogy of working the soil and planting the seed and hoping and praying for rain and hoping for a good harvest. And the harvest here represents people that God loves and whom Jesus died for, whom he's calling to himself. Now, notice what Jesus did in this. And by the way, oh, I think we need to preface this by pointing out what's on God's heart is his concern for his glory among all the nations. And we'll see this fleshed out in what Jesus did here in just a moment. His glory, his glory is his fame 
That's his reputation. It's the sum total of his being. He wants his glory to permeate every nation on the planet, not just the ones easy to get into. How is that done? Through the spread of his glorious gospel, the good news that Jesus left heaven's glory and came to earth for us as disobedient sinners. I don't know how many times I've had conversations, gospel conversations with people, and they've replied to me and said, John, I think I'm basically a good person and God's going to let me into heaven. Well, you know what? God doesn't let good people into heaven. He only lets righteous people into heaven. And that's those who have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because we've all broken God's laws. We've all told lies at one time or another. We've all taken things that didn't belong to us at one time or another. We've all been greedy or covetous of things that belong to other people. And that's just three of the Ten Commandments we've broken. And yet Jesus kept God's law perfectly. And He was nailed to an old rugged cross... He absorbed the wrath of God that you and I deserve. He took our hell for us. And he was buried and on the third day he was gloriously raised from the dead. And he offers eternal life to anyone who will receive it on his terms. Not our terms, his terms. Which is repentance and faith. It's asking God to forgive us for being the boss of our lives. That's our basic problem. We want to be the boss. We want to be in control. We don't like people telling us what to do. And you can even see that in a two-year-old. They don't like anybody telling them what to do. We're born that way. And we ask God to forgive us for being the boss of our lives. And by faith, we receive Him as Savior and Lord. And He gives us His gift of eternal life. It's the preaching of His glorious gospel around the globe. Why? Seeking lost sinners to convert into true worshipers. We're not naturally worshipers of the one true God. We're naturally worshipers of ourselves. We're self-centered, lovers of self. And God seeks to convert true into true worshipers. As Jesus told the woman at the well, the Father was seeking true worshipers. He converts lost sinners into true worshipers. So the harvest is what global missions and evangelism is all about. And so life's not about me and my happiness One of the things is we talk to young people about what they're going to do with their lives and try and determine what their thinking is. There's such a great emphasis today on find out what's going to make you happy. You know, that's not Bible. Nowhere in the Bible does it say find out what makes you happy. What we ought to be focusing on is what pleases God. And when we please God, He'll give us all the happiness we can find. In fact, the word blessed can also be translated happy is the one. And so when we're focused on pleasing God and we have his blessings he gives us happiness but life's not about me and my personal happiness it's about Jesus and his gospel so global mission starts with God and his glory let's look at three greats in this text this morning first the great harvest we'll see and we'll see that Jesus was gospel focused in verse number 35 Jesus was going through all the cities and villages Notice he didn't skip any. And this is in the upper region of Israel known as Galilee, the Galilee. Uh, Throughout the cities and villages, he's teaching in their synagogues and doing what? Proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The king was present. He was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And in Jesus' contacts, we see the reality of the harvest. The reality of the harvest. Jesus' contacts with the people. As he's engaging with people, preaching the gospel, he was gospel focused. He knew that their greatest need was conversion, the good news of the gospel. And that's still everyone's greatest need today. Not more education, not more socialization, not more uh, personal fulfillment. What people need is Jesus. I love that old song, people need the Lord. That's what they need. They need Jesus. And so he's preaching the gospel, healing every disease and sickness because nobody could be sick in his presence. And then it says in verse 36, seeing the crowds, he felt compassion. Jesus' compassion for hurting people. His compassion for hurting people. He was looking at them. Seeing the crowds of people. Seeing their needs. Empathizing with them. You know, when we go out in public and we're in crowds of people, do you ever look at people through spiritual eyes? You see this guy over here, think, 
I wonder if he's ever heard a clear presentation of the gospel. Or you see this gal over here. I wonder where she's going to spend eternity. Is she going to spend eternity with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth? Or is she going to spend eternity separated from Jesus in the lake of fire? Do you ever look at people through spiritual eyes? Jesus was looking at people through spiritual eyes, and he found they were distressed and downcast. It was like they were sheep who had been fleeced. Now, here the metaphor changes a little bit from the harvest to that of the shepherd and the sheep. And here's Jesus as the good shepherd showing compassion. It says he was, he felt compassion for them. The uh, idea was that they were like harassed. You see, in Jesus' day, The Jewish people had no spiritual leaders. Oh, they had the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but they didn't help people when they were sick. They didn't counsel them when they had problems. They were just like religious policemen going around checking boxes and see if people were keeping all the rules they had added to the Old Testament Mosaic law. That's all they were doing. And so here they were like sheep without a shepherd as if they were being fleeced because the Pharisees were horrible spiritual leaders. And yet it shows also how sin is a horrible slave master. Sin tells people, young people uh, particularly, but even adults, hey, throw off these old Bible constraints, throw off all this Christian business, do whatever you want, do whatever makes you feel good. Uh, You don't have to go by what mom and dad says or what the pastor says, just do whatever you feel like doing. And you know what? Those lies don't uh, answer for the fact that sin leaves people feeling empty and guilty because they violated God's moral standards. Romans 2 tells us God's put a conscience within every one of us. And you can't violate God's standards and just think, oh, it's going to be a wonderful time. I'll enjoy doing what I want to do. No, you've got to live with the aftermath of it, which is the guilt and the uh, results of uh violating God's moral laws. So that's the reality of the harvest in Jesus' day. Let's take a look at what the harvest is like today and look at some statistics because we're living in the 21st century. We didn't live in Jesus' day. Notice these statistics, if you would, please. The world population is growing at a rate of a quarter of a million people a day. It's at 7.9 billion, approaching 8 billion. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around numbers that big. The fastest growing religion is not Christianity. It's projected unless Jesus comes back or he does something supernatural as far as a spiritual movement that by 2070, we're talking about 49 years from now. Now, most of us won't be alive then, but our children will be and our grandchildren will be. By 2070, Islam will be the largest religion on the planet. Now, it's not because they're doing a super job of converting people to Islam. It's primarily because of their birth rate. They're having larger families. But the fact of the matter is, Islam is the fastest growing religion on the planet. And we as Christians are not doing the job that we ought to do in sharing the gospel with people to stem that tide. There's some 7,000 different languages spoken on the planet, and a third of them do not have even part of the Bible available in their own heart language. A third of them. Plus, there's a large percentage of people in the countries we looked at, and we'll see a map here next in just a moment, large percentage of people in those countries across North Africa, the Middle East, and Asia who are illiterate. They can't even read. So if you gave them a Bible in their language, they couldn't read it. And then across America, there's some 330,000 Protestant churches. Less than 10%, less than 10% have any kind of global missions program or focus to get the gospel to the ends of the earth like you folks have here at New Covenant Fellowship. So you're to be commended. You're part of the less than 10% of the churches across America that have any focus on getting the gospel to the ends of the earth. Here are the countries we're talking about. That will give you a better picture. This is a different graphic from what we saw in Sunday school. This goes again across North Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. But this shows where the religions break down are strongest. For example, Islam goes across North Africa. Here's the Middle East. Here's tiny little Israel. It's white, but you can barely see it because it's not Muslim. 
Here's the Middle East and then up into Central Asia, Afghanistan, and the stands up here, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, so forth. Hinduism is strong in India and Nepal. Buddhism is strong in Southeast Asia with Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, Thailand. Non-religious atheism is China and Mongolia up here. And then, of course, Indonesia, the largest Muslim country in the world. And these are countries where people are in darkness. They don't know who Jesus is. In fact, there's some six... No, that, um, I'm sorry, I'm starting off on a different uh, line there. There's some 50-plus Muslim-majority countries on the planet. And Islam tells them that Jesus is not the Son of God and that He didn't die on the cross... And so they don't even know who Jesus is. They're just told he's an esteemed prophet. And so these are people in darkness who desperately need to hear the good news. Remember as we saw in Sunday school that less than 10% of, if America were over here, if this map were extended, America's here, less than 10% of American missionaries go to where two-thirds of the world's population is. And in these countries here, there is risk of persecution, of being watched, of being deported if you're an American, or if they're local believers being arrested and put in prison and tortured, and ultimately some die a martyr's death. Because these nations are doing everything they can to keep the gospel out. They don't give visas to American missionaries. They don't want American missionaries coming into their countries. They block Christian websites so you can't go to Christian websites and their people can't to find out about Jesus. And yet Jesus said, take the gospel to all nations. We tend to call these countries closed countries, but that's not a Bible concept. That's an American construct. If there were ever a closed country, it was Israel in the first century. The religious leaders and the government leaders conspired together to arrest Jesus and nail him to a cross. And then his followers, as they preached the gospel throughout the book of Acts, got arrested and beaten and put in prison. So that if there were ever a closed country that hated the gospel, it was Israel in the first century. But God used that environment to accomplish our redemption. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And then the establishment of the church. And then the great missionary enterprise of the gospel going to the ends of the earth from tiny little Israel, which would be considered today a closed by uh, would be considered a closed country by those standards. So, the gospel's advance includes these present day realities that these nations, these nations have least access to the gospel. They can't just go find it on the internet. They can't just go to a local church and knock on the door and talk to the pastor to get their spiritual questions answered. Because there aren't churches there. Remember we said in Afghanistan there are 48,000 Muslim mosques. Not one single Christian church building except for a Catholic church in the Italian embassy grounds. And there are some 4,700 frontier people groups. These are people groups with the same language, the same culture and ethnicity, and yet they haven't been exposed to the gospel. Maybe one person has come to Jesus. They have less than one-tenth of one percent Christian in these groups, and they have no churches and no Bibles. Just think of what it would be like for you this morning. You got up, you had no church to go to, no Bible to read, you couldn't turn on Christian radio, how in the world would you get any spiritual truth? And plus the fact, you and I have been blessed to live in a country where we've been exposed to the gospel, some of us from earliest ages, but not these people. And they desperately need to hear what God's grace is offering to them. So we're looking at the restrictions on the harvest. Notice what it says in verse number 37. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. What restrictions are on the harvest? Well, I can tell you what it's not. It's not the hearts. People think today, well, you know, people's hearts are just hard. And they're not responding to the gospel. Now, that's true in America because we live in a post-Christian America where people have been exposed to Christianity, sometimes to illegitimate forms of Christianity, 
as Paul wrote uh, to Timothy, uh, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. They've been exposed to distorted views of Christianity, but they, they're not interested in Christianity. But you go into these countries here where they're hearing the gospel for the first time and people are coming to Christ in incredible numbers where the gospel is going forth. So the problem is not with people's hearts. Some have thought, well, maybe it's the gospel itself. Maybe, you know, it's just not working like it used to. But as Noah prayed in his prayer earlier, and don't ever forget Romans 1.16, the gospel is still the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. There's no power shortage with the gospel. The problem's not with the gospel. It's not with people's hearts. It's not even with funding for the harvest. You say, well, here are these people, they're trying to get to the mission field. They're having to travel around for two or three or four years to churches and raise support and get partnerships uh, there just must not be enough money to get the gospel out. No, it's not the funding. You know what? God's already provided all the money that's needed to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. Say so he has. Yes, he has. Where? It's in our pockets. He's waiting for us to give it. He's already provided the funds. He's just waiting for us to give it. And to get serious about living with eternity's values in view. There's an old gospel song. I haven't heard in years, but the words of it go throughout my mind. Um, that when I stand before Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ, I wish I had given him more. More, so much more. More of my life than I e'er gave before. By and by, when I look on his face, I wish I had given him more more. So what's the problem on the restrictions on the harvest? Why is there a minimal number of laborers? Well, there's a strange paradox because here God's taken us out of the miry clay, those who are redeemed. He's converted our souls. He set our feet on a rock. He's established our goings. He's put a new song in our mouths. And you'd think people who've had that happen to them, they'd be shouting it from the housetops. Let me tell you what Jesus did for me. But so often, we get in our ruts, uh, our comfort zones. Our comfort. You know what a rut is? A rut is a grave with both ends kicked out. We get in our ruts, and we don't want to step outside our ruts and take a risk of talking about a gospel conversation with somebody that we've known for years, a coworker, a neighbor, a friend, a classmate. We've known them for years. But we've, when we've talked to him about the weather, about sports, we've talked to him about hunting and fishing, our hobbies, our kids, our grandkids, but we've never talked to him about Jesus because we're so afraid if we step outside our comfort zone and bring up a gospel conversation, we're taking the risk of being rejected or them getting angry or laughing at us or stopping a friendship or asking us a question we don't know from the Bible and so we just stay inside our comfort zones with our lips zippered shut. And so it's a strange paradox that we're not sharing the good news we, though, who have been redeemed by the grace of God. And it's also a serious difficulty because if Jesus had given the great commission to the angels, guess what? They'd already carried it out. If Jesus gave the great commission to the angels that here, take the good news of the gospel to every person on the planet. Bingo, it would have been done. The angels don't mess around. They don't say, well, Lord, let us pray about it for a while. No, they obey, they obey what Jesus has told them to do. And so the problem, actually, those are facts of why there's a minimal number of labors. I want you to look at factors for a minimal number of labors. And there's a lack of spirit control living how we need to get up in the morning and ask the Spirit of God to take control of our thoughts and our words and our actions and help us to make God-centered choices each day instead of self-centered choices. My dad was in the Air Force as a chaplain for 35 years. So I like the analogy of reporting for duty. Okay? When we get up in the morning, we ought to report to the Holy Spirit for duty and ask Him to take control of our thoughts and our words and actions so that we live God-centered choices. And when we're spirit-controlled, we're not going to give in to apathy where we just don't care about people's souls around us. And if we're spirit-controlled, we won't give in to fear of where we're afraid of what they're going to think of us. 
But that's one of the reasons for a minimal number of laborers, a lack of spirit-controlled living, then ultimately a low view of God. Because if our God's glorified, every time He takes somebody out of the miry clay and changes their lives, regenerates them, and gives them a new life in Christ, we ought to want to see our God glorified as often as possible. But there's another way in which, another factor regarding this great harvest, and that's the breakdown of workers currently in terms of a global outreach. More than 95% of the graduates of most colleges and seminaries in North America, that's right here, Canada, uh, Canadian colleges and U.S. colleges, minister to the 5% of the world who live in these two nations. 5% of the world's population are in Canada and the U.S. Whereas 99% of the unevangelized, those who haven't heard the gospel, live outside of the U.S. and Canada. They're in Latin America, they're in Africa, they're in Europe, Greenland, and Asia, and the Pacific uh, Oceanic Islands. The majority of people who haven't heard of Jesus are outside of North America. And yet, the greatest number of trained ministers of the gospel and workers stay right here. It's almost as if we're hoarding the gospel in North America. And so I say to you that this is an imbalance. That 99% of the world's population out here are being overlooked. They're being overlooked instead of us targeting them, saying, hey, we want to get the gospel to these people. They've not heard of the fame of Jesus. And they're overlooked people. Let me show you a breakdown of the distribution of Protestant missionaries around the major religious blocks of countries. And these are taking the largest number of uh, religious adherents in a given country. Now, this says right here, 73% among nominal Christian nations. For example, in Mexico, 92% of the Mexican population self-identify as a Christian. 92%. That's higher than in the U.S. In the U.S., only something like 70% self-identify as Christians. Now, we know in Mexico that's because of the influence of the Roman Catholic Church. And they know who Jesus is. In fact, of those 92% of the Mexican population that self-identify as Christians, the majority of them have a crucifix on the wall of their home with Jesus on the cross, still on the cross. But they know who Jesus is. They know He's the Son of God. They know He died on the cross for their sins. But you go to a Muslim country, it's just with the Roman Catholic influence, they don't understand grace. They've been taught they have to work their way to heaven by... Um, Praying their Hail Marys with their prayer beads and going to confession and going to mass and doing pilgrimages and somehow merit enough righteousness to get into heaven. They don't understand grace, how to appropriate the death of Jesus on their own personal account. But you go to a Muslim country, we send 6%. We see 73% among nominal Christian nations. It's where missionaries go. And this is all Christian denominations. They don't know who's really born again. They just take the numbers that are submitted to them by the denominations. 73% among nominal Christian nations. That would be like Mexico, like Brazil, like Philippines, where the majority of the people are Roman Catholic and they self-identify as Christians. And we keep sending missionaries back to these countries. But what about the 50-plus Muslim-majority countries? We send 6% of American missionaries to some 50 Muslim-majority countries that have over a billion people without Jesus, and they don't know who Jesus is. They don't know He's the Son of God because Islam teaches them He's not the Son of God. He's just an esteemed prophet, and they don't know that He died on the cross for their sins because Islam teaches them that He did not die on the cross. And so... There's a great need in the harvest. Now, let's look secondly at the great request. The great request. And this is a biblical prayer request. In verse number 38. Therefore, plead with the Lord of the harvest. Um, the previous edition of the New American Standard Bible uses the word re, uh, beseech. It's not a word you and I use as much in our regular vernacular conversation this says plead with the Lord of the harvest. I think the ESV says pray earnestly for the Lord of the harvest. 
Here's a biblical prayer request. And notice, it's a priority of Jesus. Jesus commanded it. He gave it to his disciples in the first century. It applies to you and me today. It's a command of Jesus. Now, there are things that we can pray for, and we don't know. You say, Lord, thy will be done. Your will be done. I'm not sure if this is in your will or not, so I'm asking you, if it's not according to your will, then don't grant it. And there are things we pray about that we're not sure if they're in God's will or not. You pray this request. For more workers or goers into the harvest, you can know you're praying God's will because Jesus commanded it. But it's a pattern that's often overlooked. When I was a pastor, I often used this verse in the pastoral prayer, praying. If we had a special missions emphasis, we'd print it on the brochure. But one day in my quiet time, the Spirit of God said, John, you've got a prayer list you're using here. You're praying for these various things. But this prayer request is not on your prayer list. And I, did, I had to say, Lord, you're right. You've got me dead to rights. I'm sorry. I've not been obeying this command to pray for more workers for the harvest. And Pastor Paul, I presided over a lot of prayer meetings when I was pastoring in North Georgia for 23 years. Pray for the Smith family. Miss Smith is in the hospital. Pray for the Jones family. Mr. Jones has passed away and the family's in sorrow. Pray for the Morgan family. Mr. Morgan's lost his job. He's in need of employment. And those are legitimate things to pray for, to bear one another's burdens, as Galatians 5 tells us to do. But guess what? I never remember anybody raising their hand and saying, can we please pray for more workers for the harvest? I never remember that happening in a prayer meeting because it's not on our radar. And then we wonder why there's so few workers going to the field. We haven't made it a priority to pray for them. It's a pattern we've often overlooked. And this needs to be a regular prayer request in local churches who value the harvest as God values it, asking for God to send laborers. Let's look at the biblical practice. He uses the word deomai, which is the Greek word, which means to pray out of a deep sense of need. And that's why I like the word plead that's used here. Out of a deep sense of need, plead to the Father, the Lord of the harvest, to send more workers. And then the second emphasis of this is says that he will send, and the word send comes from ekbalo, which uh, is a stronger word in the Greek, the original languages, than it is in the English. It literally means to thrust out workers. Why does God have to shove us out into the harvest fields? Because, again, we get in our comfort zones, and we don't want to get outside our comfort zones, and we don't want to take any risks. And God has to shove us out. You say, well, is that unusual? No. Because you find in the Scriptures, when God called Moses to be his prophet to Pharaoh, the most powerful king on the earth, Moses said, Lord, not me, not me. Um, I'm a man of slow speech. You, you, you can't send me. He called Isaiah to be his prophet to Israel. And Isaiah said, no, Lord, not me. I'm a man of unclean lips, not me. He called Jeremiah to be a prophet to the nations. And Jeremiah said, Lord, no, I can't do it. I'm but a youth. So here we see in Scripture, great men that God used, but he had to shove them out of their comfort zones to get them to do what he asked them to do. And by the way, we ought to be praying for God to raise up more goers into the hard places full time. And even for believers who are not called, lay people who are not called to go to the hard places, being a worker in the harvest in their own sphere of influence. I think of a Mrs. Penn in the Philippines. Mrs. Penn was a woman in her 70s, illiterate. Her daughter moved away to Singapore because she couldn't find a job in the Philippines. And in Singapore, she had a friend that introduced her to Jesus and she got saved. So the daughter went back home visiting her mom, Mrs. Penn, shared the gospel with her in some of the outer provinces of the Philippines. And um, her mother, Mrs. Penn, trusted Christ as her Savior. She was born again. And she was so excited at her new faith in Jesus, she wanted to tell everybody in her village. But she was illiterate. She couldn't read the Bible, so she memorized two verses. John three sixteen, and John 14, 2. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. She went to every house in the village and quoted those two verses and told them what Jesus had done for her. About six months went by, and her daughter's pastor at the church in, the Sing in Singapore gets a phone call from this village, 
And the person on the other end says, hey, uh, a young woman from our village is in your church. And she came here and told us about Jesus and said, now we've got about 40 people who are Christians. Can we have a church in our village now? All because of a senior saint in her 70s who was illiterate, couldn't read, but she got serious about being a goer, a worker in the harvest. So I would commend to your benefit and use this 31-day prayer calendar that we have on the table. You can also download to your smartphone and pray for one country a day. Name it before the throne of grace. It takes less than 60 seconds a day to pray for one country a day and ask God to send more goers and give special grace to suffering Christians. Now, since we're not in all of those countries, we don't fill up the whole 31 days. So at the last part of the month and at the first part of the month, there's some particular frontline prayer requests. But you get the idea. This is entry-level intercession of praying for countries that desperately need the gospel, for more goers and grace for suffering Christians. Let's look lastly at our great God as we finish this up. Notice, please, in verse 38, he's the Lord of the harvest. You see that? The harvest God values so much, he's built it into one of his titles. Now, if you study the names of God in Scripture, his names teach us his character. For example, in the Old Testament, there's El Elyon, a Hebrew name. It means the most high God. He's superior to any other God human beings can invent. He's superior to Allah. He's superior to the 330 million gods of Hinduism. As we sang in the worship time this morning. His name is above every name. El Elyon, the Most High God. And then in the New Testament, the name Christ tells us as the anointed one about Jesus, three offices as prophet, priest, and king. So his names teach us his character. It's a fascinating study. I did a study myself on the names of God and came up with 55 titles of God in Scripture. Titles of the Father, titles of the Son, titles of the Spirit. And you learn more about who our great God is by studying his names. And this name is so important to God that he builds the word harvest into it. And notice as he highlights it, there are two things that are highlighted in this. First, his sovereignty. It's his harvest. Not our harvest, it's his. He's the one drawing people to himself out of every tongue, every language and people, group and nation. He's in control of the harvest and then also we see his sympathy. He cares for the harvest. As we saw back up in verse number 36, he was moved. He uh, felt compassion for the harvest. So in that title of God that he calls on us to pray to, we see his sovereignty and his compassion. You know... In Islam, they don't tell people, Allah loves you and he wants you in his family. But as a Christian, you can tell people that you're sharing the gospel with, our God loves you, Jesus loves you, and he wants you in his family. So what's needed to value what God values? First, we need a Godward focus that God's glory is the only God worthy of worship. Enamored with who God is. It's so easy to take Him for granted and take His grace for granted. His great grace to us, shown to us on the cross. You know what the problem with amazing grace is? He said, I didn't know there was any problem with amazing grace. The problem with amazing grace is it's not amazing to us anymore. We take it for granted. We think, well, the Bible says God has grace and He said He'd give it to us, so He's got to give it to us. And grace doesn't amaze us. Don't ever forget on our best days when we think we're really living great and uh, God must sure be glad to have us on his team. On our very best days, we still deserve the lake of fire. And it's God's grace that's rescued us and then gives us enough grace day by day to live for him. So we need a Godward focus. And lastly, we need an other's focus. And I leave you with these three uh, types of people that God's looking for. First, he's looking for intercessors who will pray for more goers into the harvest. And say, we're going to make this a regular matter of prayer that God would send more goers into the harvest, both full-time into hard places and then just even in our daily sphere of influence. God's looking for intercessors. He's looking for volunteers who will share the gospel with hurting people around us. 
And who'll be willing to be a goer to the hard places if he calls you to go. See, it's living, loving your neighbor. Being a servant to people around us. Because it's so easy to be self-centered instead of serving people around us. Being intercessors, volunteers, and lastly, investors who are willing to trust God by faith. Say, Lord, what can we give more to global missions than we did last year? What My wife sits and listens to me preach week after week after week. Sometimes the same sermon. She could preach this sermon this morning. But she got convicted through my preaching. And she said, you know what? We're going home. We're going to have a yard sale. And I'm going to sell a bunch of stuff that's in closets and in the garage that we haven't used for years. And I'm going to give that money to global missions. You ever thought about having a yard sale so you could get money to give to global missions? Looking for ways, trusting God by faith to give more to global missions for laying up treasure in heaven. So can you see why God values the harvest for his fame and glory? And he's looking for the ultimate fulfillment of it when we're gathered around his throne out of every language group and people group and tribal group and nation singing worthy is the lamb that was slain. And he's looking for that with great anticipation. So are you in some type of gospel uh, ministry on your own to make disciples? Making disciples is not hard. Making disciples is just helping somebody else learn how to follow Jesus. And you can go to somebody that you've known for years and said, have I ever told you about the most important relationship in my life? And they say, you mean with your spouse, your husband, your wife? No, my relationship with Jesus. And then you just tell them how he saved you. What the process was, he led you to Jesus. Say, I'd be happy to meet with you once a week and just go through the Gospel of John. Take one chapter a week and you unleash the Word of God in their hearts. You read it and let them ask questions. And if you don't know the answer to the question, you say, I'll find out by next week. And then you come talk to Pastor Paul and you get the answer and you go back next week and give them the answer. And you unleash the Word of God in their hearts. So there's no limit to what a church can accomplish when it's focused on worshiping God's glory, and that drives us out into the harvest fields. So, would you pray for one country a day that desperately needs the good news? Would you pray for more workers, more goers, and grace for those suffering Christians? And then would you say, God, help me to be willing to take a risk and step outside my comfort zone and share the good news with somebody that I've known for years, but I've never had a gospel conversation with them, never talked to them about Jesus, would you give me the grace to take that risk and do so? Father, we are so prone to focus on ourselves instead of your glory and the fame of Jesus to the nations. Would you do a work in our hearts to help us be focused on your glory and sharing the good news around us and then helping to get the good news to the ends of the earth? Continue to bless this church and this pastor and these dear people to be a lighthouse for you in this county for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.